He's already been dead and it's messed with his head. It's John's Post-Life Crisis. Welcome to John's Post-Life Crisis. I am your host, John Johnston, founder and manager of CornNation.com, your Nebraska Cornhusker site of hopefulness that life will return to normal before we all lose our minds. We are joined today by Dr. Jill Weatherhead, Assistant Professor of Adult and Pediatric Infectious Diseases and Tropical Medicine at Baylor College of Medicine, and Dr. Zachary Benny, Doctor of Epidemiology, and he also studies sports injury patterns in the pros. Uh, Welcome to the show, doctors. Uh, one of the things I'd like to focus on today is uh, the long-term speculation about where we're going with sports. I think that people have the social distancing concepts down. I think they're aware of it. They may not be practicing it, but uh, what I'd like to focus on is whether or not it will be possible for us to have college football in the fall. So the first question is, what are the latest timelines for a return to normalcy? Yeah, so I get this question a lot, John, and I, I really appreciate you asking it, but it's really difficult, and I don't like setting particular timelines because it's not a time is not our goal. Our goal is not to socially distance and stay at home for two months or three months. Our goal is there are criteria, there are, there are mile markers that we have to meet, and that's when we'll know that we're able to uh, return to something not exactly normal, but closer to uh, what we were used to uh, before the pandemic hit here. So some of those mile markers are cases, hospitalizations, deaths, they're still increasing. We're still going up the roller coaster. We have to hit the peak and then we have to come down and see the cases and the hospitalizations and the deaths going down. And we need them to slow down to essentially a trickle. And the only way that we're going to get in, get new cases to slow down that much is if we continue to stay at home, even after cases peak and the number of new cases has started to drop. We need to keep up the pressure. You can't let off uh, until uh, you get down to where new cases are just a trickle. Now, why do we need to get to that point? We need to get to that point because the next stage in the battle is to get few enough new cases that our public health authorities and our public health infrastructure so that we can test and identify cases in real time. And that requires having a ton more tests than we do right now, by the way, because we're going to be needing to do broad-based, aggressive testing, probably testing uh, people over and over again so that we can identify a large percentage of new cases as they occur. We isolate those individual people, those cases. We are able to do what's called contact tracing, which means we talk to those folks, we figure out who they've been in close contact with, family, friends, uh, if they went to any crowded areas like grocery stores. We notify those people and hopefully quarantine them as well. And that stops the virus from spreading before it gets out of control. A natural question is, why can't we just do this right now? Why do we have to shut down effectively the whole country? The reason is because we didn't and continue to not have the test to get eyes on the virus. We don't know where it is. In baseball terms, we've lost it in the sun. That ball could be anywhere. So the only thing we can do is do broad-based shutdowns. 
if we can get to the point where we have eyes on the virus, then we can do more targeted interventions on individual people, families, or uh, when there's a localized outbreak, maybe even just localized shelter and place orders, like for a city rather than a whole state or the whole country uh, until we get things under control. So that's the point that we're trying to get to. And that's probably where we'll have to be uh, until we get a vaccine in about 18 months. So that's the overall roadmap, if that helps folks. So so it will take up to 18 months to get a vaccine that's widely available. Uh, yes, at this point, uh, it will take that long at least. Um, I'd like to add just really quickly I, that I agree with um, Dr. Binney's uh, assessment and wanted to add one additional point to that in that we are able at least to look at the precedent before us. So as we are in our acceleration phase, we have the opportunity to watch what's happening in other countries that are months ahead of us. So for example, in China, who went on lockdown in their Hubei province in January on January 23rd. So January 23rd, they're on lockdown. They are lifting their lockdown tomorrow on the 8th, April 8th. And so that's a good two and a half months where they were on lockdown and now resuming some types of normalcy. So gradually lifting those restrictions. And we'll be able to see as we are in the acceleration phase, how they are uh, recovering from those lockdowns, how they're testing, what they've done in their response so that we can also adapt our response uh, based on their outcomes too, watching to see if there's secondary and tertiary waves of infections. And that's going to make a huge difference in predicting uh, and modeling where we're going to be at in a few months. That's right. So as China and other places raise their lockdowns, uh, we definitely want to watch what's happening. But I do want to add uh, just one thing on top of that, which I completely agree with, is that China is not the only place that did something like this. So we're not necessarily saying the United States has to go the way of uh, you know, follow what the Communist Party of China did, right? We're not necessarily saying that. Other democracies in Asia, uh, Taiwan, South Korea, Singapore, they have accomplished uh, very similar things uh, using uh, fairly similar, somewhat less draconian methods. So those are really the folks that, that we want to emulate uh, as, as well as China. This is not just a China thing. This is where I'm confused. Go ahead, Dr. Weatherhead. Hold on, go ahead. I'm, I'm fine. Go ahead. This is where I get confused about this stuff. And, and I have literally no medical background whatsoever other than being in the hospital sometimes. But uh, it seems that we can't all get together, back together until there's a vaccine. Is that correct? I mean, I don't see what the point of the testing is without the vaccine available. You know what I mean? I, and yeah, again, that, I'm very ignorant about this. No, I think your your concerns are legitimate. And the vaccine, if it produces sufficient immunity to the virus that can be broadly applied throughout the country and throughout the globe as well, will make a very big difference. But there's some other men, uh, measures that Dr. Binney had mentioned um, that will help us understand transmission of infection. So one of the other big questions we're asking is once you've had the infection, we know you develop antibodies to the virus. 
but what is the sustainability of that antibody and does it give you good solid immunity so that what i'm asking is if you have the infection will you get the infection again how long are you protected and if you develop that immunity um, that will also provide protection. It's a similar mechanism to what vaccine does. So we don't know right now for SARS-CoV-2, the virus that causes COVID-19, if you are infected, will you develop long-term immunity to it? We don't know that yet. So that piece of information is going to be very important to understanding the long-term impact of this disease while we're simultaneously developing vaccines. So the good news in terms of the vaccines is that there are clinical trials that have started. So that's fantastic. There's several companies and academic institutions that are moving towards uh, the clinical trial status. Um, but there's a lot of work to be done. So typically for clinical trials, once you even get to that point, there's three stages that is evaluating dosing, safety, monitoring adverse effects looking at how effective the vaccine actually is at a population level. And all of this testing needs to be done first. And that's why it takes so long. So 18 months is actually very fast to get a vaccine out. And you don't want to cut, do shortcuts with vaccines because you're training the immune system. You want to make sure that you're getting the right dose, that there's no adverse effects. It's safe for people to get. And to say 18 months is pretty quick and, um, and so you don't want to cut that time short and skip steps to make sure that this is safe for um, our communities. I could not agree more. Uh, and just to add on to that, you were saying that uh, you didn't think that we could get back together uh, until we have a vaccine. And I agree with that to an extent. What the vaccine does is uh, anybody who hasn't, or what the vaccine will hopefully do is, anybody who hasn't had the disease, assuming that it grants uh, at least somewhat long-lasting immunity to getting COVID-19 again, what the vaccine will do is generate that immunity in other people who have not been infected. And that creates something called herd immunity, which <clears throat> the best football analogy I have for this is a quarterback who is surrounded by four rushing defensive linemen. The quarterback is the virus. The defensive linemen are people who are immune. That quarterback's got nowhere to go. So he gets sacked. The virus can't spread. He can't complete that pass, right? So that's what the vaccine is going to do. There is an intermediate stage uh, between now and 18 months from now when we may have a vaccine, hopefully, knock on wood. And that involves getting the number of new virus cases down low enough and then being able to identify and separate those folks out from the rest of the population. If we can get those folks out, if we can identify and get those folks out of circulation while they're contagious, then the rest of folks can go out and continue to live somewhat more normal lives. That said, the bigger a gathering that you have, the bigger the risk is that there's somebody who slipped through the cracks. So it's all a matter of risk tolerance and risk benefit trade-offs. We are not going to have 100,000 uh, college, 100,000 person college football games uh, until we have a vaccine. I hate to say it, but that's not going to happen. Uh, we're not going to have probably 20,000 person NBA games uh, either. Could we have 
restaurants and bars at half capacity really strictly enforced. Uh, if we can really socially distance while we need to right now and get new cases down to a trickle, that's maybe somewhat more plausible, but it's, it's all a matter of scale. And the more people that you add to a situation, the more risk you create. So it all depends on the situation on the ground at the time, what you can and cannot responsibly do. So is there a, is there a viable chance? Basically what you're saying is if, if we have, let's just make up some numbers. We have like, let's say 200 people involved with a college football team, you know, between the roster and the, the trainers and the coaches and support staff and things like that. And if they can all get tested before they, like, I don't know, fly to Ann Arbor, Michigan to play a game, they take on another team of 200 people that's surrounded by a stadium with no fans in it. But uh, teams, uh, the teams and their support staff, uh, media so that we can cover the game, broadcast personnel, things like that. Is that plausible by this fall? I mean, they'd, we'd need the tests available widespread, right? That's just one thing that you would need. It's it's a lot harder than it sounds. You say, just test and make sure they're negative. You can get the virus from anybody at any time. And with current diagnostic tests, by which I mean tests that identify whether you're sick right now, these are separate from antibody tests, which can determine whether you were sick in the past. Uh, and sometimes whether you're sick right now as well. But I'm talking about the ones that would say, oh, <clears throat> you have a positive COVID-19 test. You are sick and contagious. Those can take up to five to seven days uh, after you get infected before that test turns positive, and then you can be infectious for some time after that. And again, you can pick up the virus at any time. So unless everybody involved is completely quarantined in a closed system, you know, you could test people, you could test everybody involved every other day and be fairly confident that nobody was uh, was sick, but it would have to be really aggressive. You'd have to have a ton of tests and the risk still wouldn't be zero. And then how does that all work within the context of a broader institution of higher learning, right? Are these college football players on campus? Are they in a dorm? Are other students there? Uh, there that would generate just so many opportunities for somebody to get infected, even with uh, rigorous testing. So it's it's really really difficult, and several hundred people is uh, is a lot to try and and get a group completely free of infectious and potentially uh, contagious folks. I don't know, Doctor Weatherhead. What do you think? Yeah, I I agree. I think um, one. I think it's hard to even make that prediction for the fall right now because our our limitation here is our lack a general lack of knowledge about this virus. So remember, we just learned about this virus three months ago. So a lot of what we're doing is just really trying to understand how this virus came about, how it's behaving, and what we could expect in the future. And until we understand how it will react in the future, it's really difficult to make those predictions, even as soon as the fall. So I agree that the, um, the structure of testing repeatedly, that keeping student athletes in uh, a closed environment is going to be very, very difficult. So the steps that need to be taken are are gaining that knowledge. So we need to know if this virus is gonna is going to respond like other respiratory viruses, those ones that 
are really uh, prevalent. There's a lot of cases in the winter and in the early spring and then goes away in the summer and early fall. Or are we going to have persistent transmission throughout the year? We don't know that yet. We also don't know, as I mentioned before, if someone who's infected is going to be immune to the to getting the infection again. That would be huge if we knew that. If we knew that once you get infected, like for example with measles, once you get infected with measles, you're pretty much covered for the rest of your life because your immune response has been so strong. But we don't know that yet for this virus. We need to have therapeutics that can be used to treat the infection, but also available for what's called post-exposure prophylaxis. So if someone comes into contact with somebody who has the virus, do we have a medicine available to give them to prevent them from getting that infection? So this is seen in influenza. So if you're exposed to someone who has the flu, you can take Tamiflu to prevent yourself from getting that infection. As we talked about, we need vaccines. And as Dr. Binney has mentioned, we need a health infrastructure that is readily available to do quick turnaround testing, to isolate cases, perform contact tracing, to monitor waves of infection. And without that infrastructure, I think it's going to be very difficult to to put these big mass gatherings together again in the next couple months. Wow. Honestly, I think this is very difficult for people to understand. You know, when you say that we don't know about this and we don't know about that, I think most people, when they look at like what doctors do or what medical technology is there, they, they think of like Dr. House, the TV show where this patient arrives and everybody's mystified and, and, uh, Hugh Laurie yells at his staff and in 50 minutes they diagnose some weird, bizarre disease and it's all fixed and everything's fine most of the time anyway. So when it, you know, when you look at the timelines for doing all this stuff, I, I just think that we right now as human beings think that we're really smart and you should be much faster because you're doctors and you, you have fancy titles. You know, I hate to say that, but you know what I mean? It just sounds like... Like like the timelines you're stating sound utterly fantastic and long, and they're probably yeah. not. Yeah, I think um, it's very very frustrating, and as a medical personnel, it's it's frustrating trying to treat patients and trying to see my patients in our outpatient clinic to make sure they're safe. But science takes time, and it. If you do it right, if you hold it to the standard that we want to hold it to, to make sure people stay safe, we need to do our due diligence and make sure we're doing things the right way and not rushing. And that puts huge pressure on our communities, on our economy. But what we don't want to do is come up with a vaccine or come up, uh, support a therapeutic or a, a treatment that isn't actually helpful and puts people's lives in danger. And so, you know, our job as medical professionals is to first do no harm. And and we want to make sure that we're protecting our community, our patients, and we have to do it in a scientifically um, focused way. And that is incredibly frustrating, but it takes some time, especially because this is a brand new virus that we've never seen before. So we're not talking about the flu where we have assembly lines made up to make new vaccines each year. This is something that we have to understand the science behind it before we put it into a community and 
and, and expose people to treatments and vaccines. We're going to get there. That's the hope. We will get there because we do have the scientists here. We have the medical personnel. We have um, various intelligent people working towards these end goals. So we will get there. It's just we need to do it in a scientifically sound way that makes sure it's safe for people once it's available. Yeah, that's the end goal. Uh, although I will uh, step in and say we have a long history, centuries, literally, of understanding how to, from a public health perspective, uh, combat these epidemics. The problem is these steps aren't like uh, you've got a headache, you take a couple Advil, and it's gone in 30 minutes. Uh, these things take time, particularly with a disease as insidious as COVID-19, which takes a little while to manifest, uh, is asymptomatic in a lot of people, even though those people are still contagious. Uh, and so it spreads really, really fast uh, before we can even see it necessarily. Um, so we know what we need to do, but we kind of, we missed the boat on that at the start. I mean, let's just be honest. Uh, Dr. Fauci has said this, we, we missed the boat. Now, we have to take somewhat strict measures and they're going to take time because even if you start social distancing, like if you instituted a complete lockdown today, cases would still be appearing for at least two weeks. And then those cases take a while to progress to the point of hospitalization and they take even longer to die. So it takes a really long time to actually see the effect of what we're doing. And the less strict it is, the longer it takes to see an effect. So I understand that what we are asking people to do, stay at home. It's not pleasant. It uh, hurts people's ability to work. It uh, means you're home a lot more than you're used to being. And that can be psychologically stressful for any number of reasons. Uh, so I don't want to downplay it or be like, well, you, you just need to suck it up and do it. But we're doing it to save hundreds of thousands, if not over a million lives and I hope that, um, you know, we're, we're in an era where maybe there's not a, a ton of trust in, in experts and authority and things like that. But, um, but I really hope and, and trust that we as Americans can, can come together and, and do what we need to do and understand that, uh, that it's going to take time, but we're going to get through it and we're going to get through it together. And I have faith that we will. So that's, there's, there's no preventatives for this, right? There's currently no preventatives. Um, however, this is one of the things I was mentioning to have a preventative medicine called a post-exposure prophylaxis. So if you've been exposed that you could take a medicine that would prevent you from getting the infection. And there are actually clinical trials. So testing that's being done using hydroxychloroquine, that medicine we've been hearing a lot about in the media to see if it will prevent people from getting the infection. And we don't know the answer to that yet, but there are studies going on throughout the United States uh, evaluating the use of these, uh, these drugs that can be used as um, antivirals to see if we can prevent people from getting sick. And that would be a very important uh, medication to use if it turns out to be um, useful. So what, what is the timeline on something like that, studying a preventative? 
Did so you the, mention the that? Because my mind is exploding right now. <laughs> <laughs> well, I so the, the trials have already started. So they've been enrolling. Um, it's a there's a study in the United States and Canada, uh, and they're they're currently enrolling. So um, if you've been if you've been around someone who has tested positive, you don't have infection yet. They're enrolling people who meet that criteria. Uh, to be involved in this trial. And that will take some weeks to figure that if if this medicine actually does have an effect. Again, because of that time period, that long time period of two to 14 days after exposure that you can develop symptoms, you'll have to watch each patient who's in this clinical trial for at least that time period, probably longer, uh, to see, make sure, to see, evaluate if they develop the infection or not. And then and they'll just- have to compare the Sorry for interrupting there. Uh, I just wanted to add one more thing about hydroxychloroquine, which is that this is a medicine that has been around for decades that is used in diseases like lupus and rheumatoid arthritis. And we know that it works for those. And there's a lot of people who need this medication for those diseases. So I would ask that, you know, folks trust their doctors and other healthcare providers to prescribe them hydroxychloroquine if it turns out that it actually works or if their case gets severe enough that it's worth throwing a Hail Mary on hydroxychloroquine. What we saw some of was it being prescribed a little more broadly than I think the evidence is there for. And that has resulted in some shortages of this medication for the people for whom we know it works, those with lupus and rheumatoid arthritis. So we don't want to take this medication away from them and throw it at people for whom it may or may not work. So I would just ask everybody to please um, trust your doctors to prescribe it if it's appropriate. Don't go badgering them for it and, uh, and wait just a little bit longer for the data and trust that if your case progresses to the point where it's necessary and worth trying it, um, your, your doctor will recommend that. Yeah, that that's correct. So in terms of treatment-wise, we've seen a lot of anecdotal and small studies on on medicines that could be used, but they've been they have not been convincing. And so what we need is large clinical trials, large randomized control trials that will really give us the whole story before we prescribe these medicines. And so um, scientists and physicians are are working towards that. There are large randomized controlled trials, so these big clinical trials that will evaluate the efficacy, how well these medicines work, both as a treatment and as a preventative. But until we have that information, it's not advisable to be taking this medicine because we don't know if it works. There are sufficient side effects. And as Dr. Binney mentioned, there are many people who need this medicine, specifically the hydroxychloroquine, to control other disease processes where we know the medicine works. So until we understand with some more authority the how the medicine works as a treatment, how it could potentially work as a preventative, it's not advisable to be taking unless your healthcare provider um, suggests you're on this, these medicines. It sounds like the key word to all of this is patience. That's correct. Man, yeah, I hate, I, I hate patients. <laughs> yeah, it, it's, I it's a trying time. 
you know, we have, we want to keep living our lives. We have things we want to achieve and um, we want to be around our family and friends. We want, we're a social animal. We want to be around people and we want to be productive and we're asking people to go against those instincts. And that, that puts a lot of stress on individuals and communities and economies but it's, it's the best steps that we have currently while the science is evolving uh, to make sure our communities stay safe. And, and that can be frustrating, um, and it's a lot to ask of, of people. And so we all, we're encouraging people to continue to do activities that are safe, that in, employ, um, or use the physical distancing measures we've been talking about, but also that bring them joy. So, you know, things that make them happy, like getting outside if you can, doing exercise, running, biking, walking, um, things that will get you to uh, at least have some sense of normalcy while practicing those um, physical distancing measures we've been talking about. Yep. I uh, I just got back from a run. And as long as you don't go to an area that's, uh, that's super crowded, uh, I certainly think that 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 is fine. Try to stay away from people as much as you can. I saw a great analogy. I forget uh, from whom, but uh, act like everybody is smoking and is producing a cloud of smoke, and you're not a smoker. And try to stay away uh, from that cloud of smoke uh, as much as you can. It's easier in in less dense areas, but uh, but still, you know, we would certainly recommend that. Uh, I have a regular pub trivia night uh, that I miss dearly that has since moved on to Zoom. So uh, I'm still able to do that. So if you can move some of your activities online, you know, I think that helps uh, retain uh, some sense of, of normality as well. And uh, you can always pick up the phone. You can FaceTime. You can video conference. Uh, it's a great time to catch up with people that maybe you haven't in a while. And, uh, and yeah, but it's, you know, again, I completely understand that it is not easy and that we're asking people to do a lot. I just want to say for a minute on the uh, the idea that this is economically damaging uh, what we're doing and maybe it would be better, you know, maybe the cure is worse than the disease. I just want to emphasize that um, I haven't read the whole report, but what I've seen of it, I've liked. Uh, there's been a very detailed report put out by the American Enterprise Institute, which is a right-leaning uh, pro-business uh, think tank in the Washington, D.C. area. And they are recommending basically the exact same things uh, that I and Dr. Weatherhead are saying. So there really is broad-based agreement on what we need to do and the fact that we can't just release people and, and go back to quote-unquote normal uh, too early or or it would be disastrous uh, for the economy as well. So we are working uh, as fast as we can, but I know it's uh, it's it's taking more time than people like. And, um, you know, just also remember that that by staying at home, you are accomplishing so much. I know it. I know it feels like you're not like you're doing less, like you want to be out doing stuff and helping. I feel that same thing, too. But by staying home, you are saving lives. And how many lives are you saving? The early CDC estimates uh, pegged the upper end uh, of the uh, number of deaths from COVID-19 in the U.S. at about 1.7 million. Uh, later reports say if we don't uh, really socially distance, if we kind of just release things and let the virus uh, run its course, uh, deaths could be one to two million or even higher in the U.S. And it's really hard sometimes for, for people to to grasp what that number means. So just to put it in concrete terms, 
1.7 million people dying would be a 9-11 every single day for 18 months. It would be terrorists uh, blowing up the Super Bowl and killing everybody there 24 times. So I would encourage us to think about what we would do, the resources we would spend, uh, the liberties that we would uh, temporarily give up, the things that we would do, the things that we would sacrifice in order to prevent even one more 9-11. Not only the things that we would, but the things that we have sacrificed to prevent one more 9-11 and realize that you're preventing over 570 of those by doing what we need to do now to keep the deaths from this pandemic down. Uh, I think that that's really important for people to keep in mind that that you are doing something truly, truly great and selfless and magnificent every time you stay home. I have I have people in my social media timelines that think this is all a hoax because the number of deaths deaths is not increasing exponentially, or it's not you know it's not nearly as bad as you just said the 1.7 million people. Uh, I do have one more question after this, but I, I think that is because there's a giant mistrust of the media because we've become so polarized. I don't want to get into politics either, but I really appreciate the fact that you guys would come on my podcast and explain this stuff because I hope people trust experts and stop looking at their YouTube videos that are showing empty hospitals and saying this is all a hoax. Um, I do have one more question. And it has to do with... Well, can I actually jump in and just say something about the hoax? Because I think you brought up a really important point, which is that, well, first of all, we are still seeing uh, quickly increasing deaths uh, in this country. uh, And it's going to get worse. That is the expectation. So that's going to happen. Uh, The reason I think where people are getting confused and frustrated with experts, and I understand is that, say, there was the model in the United Kingdom that said 510,000 people were going to die, and then a week later, it got revised down to 20,000. And people are going, well, what happened to the other 500,000 people? Here's what happened. They were always in the model. When we build a model in epidemiology, we're making a prediction about what will happen under certain circumstances. That model that said 510,000 people, that was a model assuming that the UK did essentially nothing, continued with its original plan to not socially distance and let the virus run its course. Then they saw that, they realized, oh my God, we're going to kill half a million people. And they changed their minds to say, okay, we're going to socially distance. And then magically the model says only 20,000 people are going to die. That model always said 20,000 people in the UK were going to die if they aggressively socially distanced. The model did not change. What changed was the inputs into the model because of decisions that humans made to take it seriously and to save those lives. So uh, I know it's it's a really nuanced point and it's really difficult um, to communicate and for folks to grasp, but we would be seeing way more deaths uh, even than we're going to see uh, if we don't do what we're doing right now. And this is a very common problem in all of public health. We actually have a name for it. It's called the paradox of prevention. If you prevent something, uh, it looks like you were crying wolf. And people don't like to spend money on prevention because you don't concretely see what happened. It's not like you gave somebody a drug and they got cured. Every case of disease that you prevent 
you well, you never saw that case. So how can you really know if it's real, right? Well, it's real, but it's it's hard for people to grasp that. So I think that's where some of that is coming from. And I hope that maybe my explanation of the model in the UK uh, has made sense for some folks. And and just a reminder that there is broad-based agreement across the political spectrum now about what we need to do. Anything to add, Dr. Weatherhead? Yeah, I I completely agree. And I think one of the frustrating parts for our communities is in some areas of the country, we're not seeing the impact that you're seeing in other parts. So for example, what we're seeing in New York City is complete devastation and overwhelming of the healthcare system. And, and we're not seeing that yet in other areas of the country. And so it makes this disconnect where people aren't having the same experience in one area of the country that they are in the other. But what that means is that it's just not there yet. So it started in New York, it started in Washington state. We're seeing these hotspots popping up. You don't want your community to be the next hotspot. So right now when you're not having the caseload, where you're not having the overwhelming health system, now is your time to step in and perform these measures that may seem like over-exaggerations and overkill. But in reality, as Dr. Binney explained, these are what these measures are what are going to prevent you from experiencing the hardships that other areas of the country are experiencing right now. And so while it may seem like a hoax in the, to you because you're not seeing the impact of it, it's just because it hasn't gotten there yet. And you have a, an opportunity now to make sure that it, if it does, if and when it does, it's not going to have the devastation that other areas of our country are suffering from right now. And the flip side of that is that you can compare New York to areas like Washington and California, where they have, uh, where they have had not quite as severe an outbreak on a per capita basis. And you can see that those areas, uh, Washington and California, who acted earlier and acted more aggressively, they didn't have cases in New York did. That's the closest we're going to get to essentially showing people what's going to happen if you do act versus you don't act. So I, I hope that people see those experiences and take them to heart. And exactly like uh, Dr. Weatherhead said, act before before you look like New York. Because once you look like New York, it's too late. You've already lost. It's like it's it's like in football. It's like if you're just trying to get to a manageable third down, you've already lost. You should be trying to get a first down on first down and second down. If you're playing for third and four, you've already lost. We can't be playing for third and four. You got the sports references going. I'll give you that. (laughs) All right. Be aggressive, man. One more question, and it has to do with cross-disciplinary teams. All right. My, my real life, in my real life, I am an IT consultant, and I've been an IT consultant for like 30 years. Um, I work with guys who work on database servers, and I work with guys who work on networks, who work on security, and work on application development. The database server guys, they don't know anything about the networks or security. The application developers, they normally don't know a lot about databases or networks or security. And then the network security guys, they know nothing about either the database or the application development. But yet all these people have to work together to build, well, Amazon, you know, or BestBuy.com or or your website where you want to go I do anything, you know. 
it's when you're trying to develop a vaccine or develop these testing, I mean, how many different disciplines are needed to work together? And is a lot of this based on luck or is it based on a massive amounts of testing? You know, describe if you can that process a little bit. Yeah, I think um, science in general is a massive community based effort across disciplines. So in order to make a test, in order to make a vaccine, you need to have basic virologists, so people who are studying uh, viruses. You need to have immunologists, people who understand the immune response to these viruses. You need to have people who can do production, um, stabilization of vaccines and treatments. So these are all different types of scientists uh, who are able to make the actual product. And then once the product is made, you need to work with business people to understand how to get this out into production. You need to work with uh, politicians, with government to get it uh, verified and get it approved. And then you have to work with our, our community members. You need uh, people to enter into clinical trials, uh, to give up their time, volunteer their time to do this testing. It is a whole community approach of scientists, business folks, government, community members to get these drugs and these vaccines from the bench out into the community. And each one plays a very critical role. And, of, and then, of course, then watching to see how these um, therapeutics and vaccines are working through the work of our epidemiologists to understand their, the impact of these interventions and doing our predictive modeling that um, Dr. Vinny has been, been discussing. So it is incredibly inclusive uh, process and the uh, accumulation of a lot of knowledge to make sure that what we're putting out to the community is not only safe and effective, but will be uh, viable and uh, a sustained approach to control and prevent this infection. Wow. Dr. Benny, anything to add? No. No, Dr. Weatherhead hit the nail on the head with that one. All right. If, if, if I had to summarize this conversation, it would come down to there's not going to be any college football in the fall. Is that, I mean, if you had to assign a probability to that statement, what would it be? I mean, and I realize, listen, I tell my guys that are writing for me on coordination, we're in the business of speculation. So don't worry about being wrong because that's what we do. I mean, it's safe to say there's not going to be any fall sports. Is that correct? College football, I think, is more difficult than professional football for a right. number of reasons. Uh, I know that maybe you don't mind a, a wrong prognostication, but I'm going to stay away from from putting numbers on those. I, I will say it's more likely that we don't have college football than, than that we do. I think that, that there is still a real chance of having the NFL without fans uh, in the fall, but it relies on us doing what we need to do right now, being really aggressive and strict about staying at home and getting cases down to a trickle and then having both the public health resources and the will to test everyone, isolate anybody we find who is sick, trace their contacts and quarantine them. And that is going to take a massive scaling up of resources and also 
you know, hard decisions about what to do, say, if somebody refuses to isolate, even if they're shown to be sick. I think we need to have some thoughts and, and conversations about that as a country. Um, but the more that we can do right now and the stricter we hold to it and uh, the better that we do, then the sooner that some forms of sports can come back. And I think that it it will go roughly individual sports, team sports, college sports, sports with fans. I think that's roughly the the progression that you're going to see. I don't want to see that the NFL season is a sure thing because it's not. It's definitely in jeopardy if we don't uh, – if we don't keep dealing with this uh, at least as seriously, if not more seriously than we have been uh, college sports, I think is harder off because it's within the context of a college and requires students being able to return to a campus. Uh, probably I would suspect. Yeah. If they, if they don't do that, then they'd have to admit that the college football players are employees and they're only there for the money. And that's a whole nother podcast, a whole nother. <laughs> subject. No comment. Yeah. yeah. Uh, is there anything that I didn't ask that you want to add? Or have we covered all the bases? Yeah, I think we've we've covered quite a bit. Um, I know that it's it's just a very frustrating time for people. And as a very diehard sports fan myself, I, I don't know what to do with and the very little free time I have usually goes to watching sports. So um, without it, it's been, it's been different and we've had to adjust. And so I, I completely empathize with the sports fans out there, your listeners, how difficult this can be um, with the athletes, especially who want to get back out there, but we have to make sure we do this in the safest way possible um, and get back onto the field as soon as it's safe to do that. Oh, it kills me that I- I can't go to a ball game. I'm an enormous sports fan too. And believe me, if there is a way for football to happen this fall, I will be the first one uh, clamoring for it. But the reality is the public health situation on the ground is very fluid and it's going to depend on how well our response works and, and how well that we stick to it. And, uh, and we'll have to see a little bit closer. Uh, there's also the issue of, um, you know, you can't just pop athletes right back on the field, right? They need time to ramp up. Uh, a lot of these uh, men and women have are, are not able to engage in their regular training regimen. So you need to bring them back up to speed uh, gradually. Uh, that's going to take a little bit of time. So we, we need to be sure to factor that in as well. But it kills me that there's no sports right now. And, and I want it to come back as soon as possible. But sports is a microcosm of society. And it reflects, I think, some of the best things about us as a society. So it cannot, it cannot do something that massively undermines society, like holding games with fans when it's not safe. And I think that you've seen, you've seen every single league in the country pretty much get that message and put that message out there. And, you know, the NFL is doing exactly the right things by uh, holding a fully virtual draft and, uh, and not allowing travel for physicals and closing down team facilities and things like that. So, um, you know, they're, they're getting the message and I hope that they'll continue to send the message and, and we'll get back to play just as soon as it's safe. Well, I want to, I want to thank you both for taking your time to talk to me. I think the message is important. Uh, 
I, I hope that people got a lot out of this. I certainly did. I'll probably have to listen to it again to actually digest it because again, this is a, this is a field and a constant, you know, the whole medical background stuff. It's just, there's a lot to it. So uh, I think we're going to wrap up again. Thank you both for joining me. This has been John's post-life crisis. Uh, I hope you all staying safe out there. I hope you're social distancing and taking care of yourselves and go big red. Someday we'll get back together.